Well, uh, you probably don't need a lot of convincing to reach the conclusion that there is a lot that is wrong in this world that we live in. Am I right? Uh, if you have turned on the TV and watched a newscast at any time over this past year and a half or so, you likely have found yourself maybe wondering out loud, what in the world is going on? Right? Is it just me or any of you like that too? I have found myself saying that so many times. And that question is actually the question that the book of Revelation uh, was written to help answer. What in the world is going on? It was written to help God's people make sense of a world where nothing seems to make sense. And that is kind of a lot like the world that we're in right now. Uh, it was written for first century Christians um, living in the Roman Empire, and they were struggling to understand what was going on in their world. In their world, a, a mere man, the Roman emperor, he was exalted to the supreme place. He was deemed to be a god, and he was idolized as the object of worship. At the same time, uh, the, the Christ followers, those who, those who followed Jesus, they were getting hunted down. They were getting taken out. They were being arrested, and they were being persecuted, and they were actually being fed to the lions at the Colosseum for entertainment purposes. This is the, this is the, the time frame that we're entering into with the book of Revelation and a lot of them were scratching their heads. What in the world is going on? And so here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still asking that same question, aren't we? We struggle to understand and to make sense of what we see going on in the world around us. And, and for those of you who have been around, we are now eight chapters into the book of Revelation and I don't know about you, but I haven't found any easy answers yet, you know? Um, instead, what I found, and I think what Revelation offers, is a bigger picture, right? A bigger picture to lock onto a wider view of what is going on. One that's not just limited to what's going on here in our physical world, but it extends to let us in to what's happening in the spiritual realm, in eternity, up in heaven as well. And, and when, we, when we expand our view to that level, what we find is Almighty God seated on his throne as the ultimate object of worship. And, and right now, today, his plans for this jacked-up planet are playing out. His will is being accomplished in and through human history, and we are moving towards that moment when Jesus returns, when he takes the reins and makes all things right again. And, and, and Revelation, it has a way of communicating these realities, these truths, in ways that you might describe as uh, creative, right? Or maybe you say it's unique, or maybe even bizarre. All of those fit, and, you know, probably the right series title for the section that we're in right now would be Stranger Things, uh, because we are coming and we are encountering some really strange things in the passages uh, that we're working through, and, 
And I know there, you know, I do feel a little bit of a risk. You know, Pastor Brian, what in the world are you doing preaching on a book of like Revelation during a time where you're finishing up a building project? Because that is an easy way to empty out a church. There's some crazy stuff in there. And so uh, I am so glad that you guys came back after last week. Um, but Revelation is a lot like a picture album. You know, and on each page, we see a different snapshot, a different word picture, a different description. And these descriptions, they're intentionally graphic and they're intense and they communicate these eternal realities. And so, and so last week, we, we saw Jesus, the, the, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, open up seven seals. And the seals are followed by a series of trumpet blasts that get blown in heaven. We're going to look at this morning. So we're going to look at them today. But my disclaimer is this, is that the trumpet section actually takes up four chapters of the Bible. Four chapters. And so we all have, you know, we have lunch plans already. Um, and, and we don't want to stay here till sunset. And so we're only going to be able to cover this section in sort of like a very big picture overview, which I, off, I also think that's helpful. Um, and, and I have to break my promise. I guess, I, what am I promised? But my desire was to be able to read through the entire book of Revelation out loud here on Sunday morning. But it, man, if we were to read through four chapters, we basically have to close after that because that's a lot of, it's a lot of territory. So, so as kind of a consolation, um, we scheduled for this coming Wednesday night a Ask Anything seminar, workshop, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, uh, and what we're going to do is just uh, meet at the ministry center. And if you have questions about Revelation, um, there is a place on our website where you can send those in and we can look at them. And I'm sure you do have questions about Revelation. And I could be more thorough and even go through some of the stuff that uh, maybe I can't get to on a Sunday morning. And we'll, we'll try our best to also have some fun with it and just kind of work through things together. Um, I will say this, that if you didn't hear it, last week's message um, is a good one to listen to because that in that, what I do is, is I kind of explain a little bit on how it is that I am working through this book, how, you know, the interpretative lens that I'm looking through it. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that. I'm sure some of you don't. And to be sure, you know, to be honest, there's a good chance that I'm not going to agree with me by the time we get to the end of this book. And that's okay. Um, the goal is, and I hope that if this is motivating us to dig deeper into God's word, that's great. And we can learn uh, together. So anyway, so let's jump in. We'll look at the next snapshot, and I'm going to just read uh, from, from chapter 8, um, verses 1 to 5. And it says this, um, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose 
before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Um, so we have seen up to this point that heaven is a pretty noisy place. Did you notice that? You know, they tend to use outdoor voices in heaven. Not a lot of whispering. There's a lot of shouting through the halls of heaven. The voices are loud. The singing is loud. Thunder seems to be a common occurrence. So in my mind, what that means is you can have peace without being quiet, right? Quiet isn't a necessary prerequisite for peace. And I'm not sure about this, but I think there's at least, at least a decent chance that heaven is going to kind of be like the ultimate hard rock concert. Think about that. Think about that. You know, heavenly metal. Um, but what we see here is that trumpets have just been handed out. Seven trumpets have been handed out. And that's probably an indication that the volume level is going to get even dialed up higher than it already has been. Um, but before the blasts begin, this half-hour hush falls over heaven. And in that silence where you can't hear a pin drop, there's this incredible scene that's up front and center for us to, to look at it. The throne room of heaven, it's turning into a kind of temple. Um, you know, there's an altar there, uh, there's incense, there's a censer, and, and we aren't all that familiar with these Old Testament temple images, but to the people that Revelation was written to, that temple, that, that represented, they understood that that was, that was symbolic for the presence of God. That's where you would go to encounter the living Almighty God. That's where his presence resided. And so here's this heavenly presence that, that houses Almighty God, right? And the prayers of God's people are being presented there to him as an offering right there on the altar, right there in front of the throne. And so this snapshot shows us just how precious the prayers of God's people are to him. It's an amazing snapshot that the prayers that we pray make their way to him. And sometimes down here on earth, right, it doesn't always seem that way, right? Sometimes it seems where, like we kind of wonder, are my prayers doing anything? Are they going anywhere? Are they just getting stuck on the ceiling and not making it any past, anywhere past there? You know, or, or maybe did they get lost and root to heaven? Um, do they accomplish anything? This passage assures us that our prayers do matter and that our prayers make their way to the intended destination. It says he receives the prayers of all the saints. Think about that, those, those whispered prayers said in quiet, off the radar screen, are making their way to the very throne room of Almighty God. And make no mistake, they make a difference. They make an impact. This snapshot just highlights the incredible power of prayer. So, so up to this point in Revelation, the trajectory has been one way. It has been heaven to earth, 
one direction. But here, what we see is the opposite. We here you see the, the prayers go from earth up to heaven, but then it boomerangs back with supernatural power back onto the earth. It's actually been described as reversed thunder, and I think that's a beautiful snapshot description of what prayer is. These prayers are impacting the events on earth in a way that nothing else can, in, in some mysterious way, in a way that we can't fully comprehend, they are releasing the power of God. The, the prayers of the saints in this passage, they are setting in motion what we're going to look at with the trumpets, what happens next. And, and we don't understand it, but make no mistake, the message here is clear. Living in a world gone mad, keep on praying. Don't stop. Keep on pleading for God to intervene, to do what needs to be done, to do what we can't ever do on our own. Keep on pouring out your hearts to him because God hears each and every one of them. And the prayers of God's people, they are more powerful, likely, than any of us are ever going to fully comprehend this side of eternity. Someday, it's going to be known. We'll be up there and we'll be, I had no idea what was happening through my prayers. That's the first snapshot. Let's take a look at the next snapshot as this moment of silence uh, comes to an end. It says this, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and those were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third were destroyed. A third angel blew his trumpet and, the great and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch and fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars and so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth and the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow." All right, so we got to unpack this. What in the world is going on here, right? Each trumpet here is unveiling this different snapshot that's basically describing a world that has been set on fire, right? And there's some patterns here to this passage. And some of these patterns are worth pointing out because I... There is something about this scene that might sound just vaguely familiar to you. If, if you remember your Old Testament, you might have caught it. Um, it sounds a little bit like the Exodus. You remember the Exodus? This is the story of when God sent Moses to the most powerful person on the planet, Pharaoh of Egypt. Moses 
this nobody, went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh just basically said, no, he dug in his heels. And, and so because of that, God sent all kinds of terrible plagues on Egypt. Same plagues that we're reading about right here. He, he, he sent hail mixed with fire. And the sea turned to blood. And it, and it killed the fish. And it made the water undrinkable. And the sky grew dark. This revelation story, it's starting to sound a lot like the Exodus story. And it seems to me like that's the whole point. Now, you are completely free to disagree with my interpretation. Um, don't get mad at me. Um, you know, I know there are entire books that are written about this kind of stuff, unveiling about how these trumpets set in motion the end of the world. And that may be, but I think what we're reading here has less to do with decoding the end of the world, and it has a lot more to do with instilling hope and courage and conviction and faith into the hearts of God's people living in a world gone mad. So the point here is this. Pick up the plot line because the time and the setting, it may be different, but the story is the same. Okay, so that's what I feel is getting at here. So back then, it was Pharaoh. For them, it was Nero. But by putting these echoes in this passage, what he's saying is that it's the same story. It's the same story. Pick up the plot line because you know how that story ends, right? You see, for God's people, it's the same old story, playing out at different times in different settings. So to me, this is kind of like a Liam Nielsen movie. Uh, you know, Liam Nielsen, um, the movie Taken. You ever see that movie Taken? I love this movie Taken. He plays this part of an ordinary guy. He's off the radar screen. He doesn't want any trouble. But of course, trouble finds him when his daughter gets kidnapped. And so he calls the bad guys on the cell phone. And he explains to them in a very calm, cool, but incredibly threatening voice um, that he has acquired a particular set of skills over the course of a very long career that makes him a nightmare for people like them. So he says, let my daughter go, and we'll forget anything happened. But of course, they don't let his daughter go. And so the rest of the movie is basically about him hunting them down, kicking their butts, and becoming a nightmare on them. It's a great movie. I love that movie, and I've seen that movie with him in it about five or six times, right? The, the settings are a little different, the titles of the movies are different, but the plot lines are almost identical. It's almost to the point where if, if I see a movie with him starring in it, I know how the movie's going to go. I have to even watch it, and, but I will watch it because I love the movie. So, um, you know, that's kind of what's going on here. For the Israelites, it was Egypt. For the first century Christians, it was Rome. Same story. But here's the thing, for them, they were in the middle of it. Their story wasn't over. They were in the middle of some of these scenes that they were living through were really scary. They, 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 were, they, they were not sure how it was gonna turn out. And so, and so they read this and they hear the echoes of Exodus 
and they're reminded. <sighs> Deep breath. Both stories are going to end the same way. And, and please understand that that's still true for God's people today. It's still true in the middle of pandemics, in the middle of social upheaval, and we wrestle and we work through all of these very real threats, these challenges all around in our world. Some of them seem really overwhelming, don't they? Right? There are times when we might look around and say, the cause of Christ looks hopeless. Things just look hopeless. Look at all these things that are eroding around us. And a lot of times, things get scary. And so we're called to do the same thing. Pick up the plot line, guys, right? It's the same old story. It's a good story. And we know the way it ends. It ends with God's people safe and sound together with Jesus for eternity. See, this is why it is so critical to stay immersed in your Bible. Keep your Bible open. Keep grounded in Scripture because what God has done for his people in the past, that is the grid to lay on top of whatever it is that we're working through, that we're wrestling through in the present because it's, it's the same author. It's the same faithful God writing it. So remember how that exodus, the, the Exodus story went down? God's people weren't taken out, even though it seemed like they were going to be. They weren't taken out of the plagues or the judgments, but they were, they were protected through each one of them, and then they got saved from them in the end. Now, there were chapters there in Exodus when it seemed like they were completely outmatched. They had zero reason for hope. But in the end, God walled up the great sea, the Red Sea, and, and they walked through on dry ground and they went free. God is still writing that same storyline for his people today. Let that bleed into that unrest that you might feel as you're reading the paper, watching the news, the anxiety, the fears to know that it's the same story. There's a, there's, there's a different plot, let's say a different aspect of this plot line that goes along with the Exodus story as well. Um, it's the theme of, of the third. I don't know if you pick that up as I'm reading through it, that just gets repeated again and again. Um, so what's being described in this passage with this trumpet, it's, it's, it's not like an all-out blaze. It's more of a controlled burn a contained burn. So it's just a third of the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the sea, a third of the sky. So what we're seeing here, this is not total judgment. This is, this is just partial. This is just partial. And I think that gives us just a little snapshot, a little peek into the heart of God and to see his, his heart, his grace, his mercy, and his patience to give people more time in the hope and the expectations that they would come to their senses and turn around. See, the idea at this stage is that this fire, it doesn't need to graze to the ground. With the right response, it, this thing can be put out. 
And, and the hope would be that the people would look at the devastation around them and turn to God and repent. But there's this very sad summary statement. It's written at the end of chapter 9. It says this. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, did not give up, worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So what's happening here is the planet at large is responding the same way Pharaoh responded in Exodus. Instead of turning around, they're, they're doubling down. They're hardening their hearts. They're digging their heels in. And so here's the point. Just as much as God is writing a salvation story, there's another side to that story. It's a story of salvation for some, and it's also a story of wrath and judgment for others. Not because God is intent on writing that story, it's because of hard hearts that refuse to repent and surrender to the living God. And the way we respond, that determines what side of the story we end up on. So um, there's two other trumpets in this section. We're not going to read through the passage, but they paint some other scenes. Um, we're not going to dive too deeply into them. Um, some of you may be disappointed by that. Others of you are probably very relieved about that because these are very strange. They, they, they may be the strangest portions of Scripture in the entire Bible. There's locusts and scorpions and, and bottomless pits. We'll, we'll read through it on Wednesday. Um, if you want to dive deeper into it, we, we can do that. But let me just summarize quickly. Um, the fifth trumpet brings this season of suffering, five months of misery. And people are left hopeless. And it says they long to die, but they're unable to. And it's so ironic because it's the Christians, their lives are being taken by those who feel in their hearts that they'd be better off dead. Um, and we're also at this stage, this is where we start to get this, this glimpse that there are evil powers, spiritual powers that are underneath the human power structures of this planet. So the king of the locusts, he, he has a name. His name is Apollyon. And, and that means to destroy. That's the interpretation. Now, Apollo uh, was one of the Greek gods. His emblem was the locust. And more specifically, the Roman emperor Domitian, he used to be called Apollo. He would refer to himself as the god Apollo. Okay, so you kind of see some of these, these clues coming together. And my take is that what it's saying here is that the leader, the emperor himself, he is one of Rome's greatest threats. He is going to destroy the kingdom that he's been entrusted to lead. He's going to blow it up and he's going to make life miserable for its citizens. The sixth trumpet signals an invading army. Um, it talks about the river Euphrates. And on the other side of the river Euphrates, everyone in the first century knew it was the Parthian Empire. They were the arch enemies of Rome. 
And they were known, their military were known for their horse soldiers, skilled horse soldiers who had perfected the practice of having archers who were backwards on the horse. While the horse rode forwards, the archers would aim backwards. And they're described in this vision as terrifying scorpions with a sting in their tail. And as much as that reminds us of the horror of warfare, of how we are blowing this world up through conflict, it's doing something else as well. It's pointing us to these deeper realities that there are demonic powers um, that are behind and underneath it all. And they're going to come more to the forefront in, in the in the chapters ahead, if you're interested. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, so, so we are we're really flying through this uh, at rocket speed. I, I hope I'm not losing of any of you through this. Um, we're going to quickly look through one last snapshot, the snapshot of the sixth trumpet, and the picture that it paints that there is a task that has been given um, that is ours to complete. I'm only going to read just a little bit of it because this is actually two chapters long. Um, it takes strange to a whole new level. Um, and what happens here is John, who had up to this point, he had basically just been the reporter. He's looking at what's happening in heaven. He's writing it all down. But here at this point, he actually becomes part of the story. He gets wrapped up into the story himself. He's handed this open scroll by this mighty angel, and he's told by the angel, eat this and then speak the scroll. And he recognizes this message that you're ingesting, this scroll, it's, it's going to be both sweet and bitter at the same time. Um, that's, that's chapter 10 of Revelation. And and once again, here's a deja vu moment, right? This is deja vu all over again because that same thing happened to the prophet Ezekiel when he was given his call to prophesy and to preach. So it's this indication that the message he's been entrusted with is going to have a, a sweet reception to some, but there's going to be some bitterness to it. It's going to get a sour response from some others. Um, and then chapter 11 uh, follows up with this fantastical vision Two unstoppable witnesses who come from God and who testify. They're reminiscent of Moses and Elijah, and they're also identified as two lampstands. We've already seen, if you were here at the beginning in Revelation chapter 1, that lampstands equals churches. Um, and and these, these two, they, they witness by the words that they speak and by the miracles that they perform and then the moment they finish their task, they, they finish their testimony, and this beast rises up from the bottomless pit and kills them both. And they're lying slain on the ground for three days, after which point God breathes life back into them, and they ascend back up into heaven. Okay, so that's the Cliff Notes version of chapters 10 and 11. And, and here's what I believe this is pointing to. This is the picture that this is painting. That, that um, the, the point is that at the very end of this, after this all happens, for the very first time in Revelation, and I think it may be the only time, we see people have actually turned and repented. It says this in verse 13, that the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
And then the final trumpet after that, the final trumpet blasts, and, and that's basically the end. It, in, in this snapshot, it just signals the end of the story. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus steps onto the throne, and his reign begins. But the point is that that doesn't happen until the task of testifying has been completed. All right? So those lives that started worshiping the Almighty God they didn't do that apart from the testimony and that message of who Jesus is getting out. And I understand that to be a snapshot of us. This is God's church. This is us. Not at some point, you know, after things all go crazy, but right now. Remember Jesus' last words before he ascended to heaven. All authority has been given to me. Now go, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the end, Jesus said, the end will come after this gospel has been preached to the ends of the earth. That task of testifying needs to get completed. And that message is the message that makes a difference, the gospel who Jesus is, what he has done, how we respond. It's what takes enemies and uh, makes them into, into friends of God, right? And, and, and there are forces set up against that, that testimony, um, but that's okay because that is the testimony, that is the test that the Holy Spirit of the living God gets behind and fuels in the lives of his people, and it's what changes lives. Here's what it's saying, though. It's going to cost something to get that message out. It's not going to go out easy. It may cost us something. It may cost us everything. And again, we know around the world today, right now, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are giving everything because of their testimony to Jesus. And what this is showing us again is that the path to our victory is the same path that Jesus took to his victory, right? That same road where those, those, those two witnesses were killed and then just like Jesus, three days later, they came back to life and they went up to heaven. And that's, that's the path. Death leads to resurrection. Resurrection leads to victory and glory. If there's no other message like it, there's gonna be some bitter to it, right? There's gonna be a whole lot of sweet to it as well. The bitter is that there is a need in our lives that there, that's beyond our ability uh, to meet on our own. We can't do it ourselves. We need Jesus. He's the only one who can. And the good news is that he did everything that needed to be done. He did it on the cross when he died to pay for your sin and our rebellion and everything that separates us from a holy God. And the call of the gospel message of this testimony is to turn away from our sin and repentance and to turn to Jesus in faith. And that response is the response that turns our stories from a story of judgment to a story of salvation. That's the hope of the gospel. That is the task of testifying. Whatever it costs is worth it. It's worth it. And, and so we're going to close this morning, and I've given you a whole lot to kind of, you know, ponder, think about, reflect on, and respond to. 
If you are someone here this morning and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never responded to that mo- the gospel message of grace and everything that Jesus has done for you, I just want to encourage you to let today be that day. Starts out with a simple prayer of faith. Lord Jesus, I know that I can't do it on my own. And you went to the cross to do for me what I could never do. And so I turn in trust to receive you and I turn away from the sin so I can live a life that's pleasing to you. That, that takes us from enemies and makes us into family. That turns our story from a, from a story of tragedy into a story of triumph. It doesn't take away all the troubles. As a matter of fact, there's a good, there's a good sense here that if your life is connected to Christ, you're going to probably have more trouble in this world than you would if you didn't have him in your life. But widen the picture. Look at the end of the story. The end of the story is all of God's people safe and sound with Jesus in eternity.